Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And it's the big one today, The Exorcist from 1973. One of the most popular films of all time at the box office. I think adjusted for inflation, it's like the ninth highest grossing, ninth most popular film of all time. A real phenomenon. Um, this is the film about a little girl who has a devil inside her. Actually, it's a demon called Pazuzu, but I think you only really learn that if you watch the sequels. And a priest is enlisted to help her after she's gone through lots of kind of medical tests that have revealed nothing. The doctors finally go, exorcism, you need an exorcism, you need a priest for this. And they get in uh, Father Karras, a Jesuit priest who is in the middle of losing his faith. He's lost his mother. And uh, when he becomes convinced that an exorcism is required, he goes to the church and the church gets in Father Merrin, played by Max von Sydow. Um, or I think in Swedish it's more Max von Sydow and the famous exorcism happens. So what's your relationship with this film, Jose? I know that you have thoughts. Well, my my relationship on it is that it's one of those films that I was dying to see because I think it came out when I was 11. Uh, and so, of course, I couldn't see it. And actually, it's one of those films that, you know, I, I didn't really see until about 10 years ago. I think you know, that was the first time I, I saw it. Um, but, you know, I did uh, buy the novel, right? Mm. So as a tween, I, I read the novel. And actually, the extraordinary thing is I can't remember anything about it <laughs> except buying it and reading it. I remember buying it. I remember reading it. I remember the way the cover looked. It had a purple cover. You know, I remember where I bought it. Yeah, it's funny the way memory works. But actually, of, the sto- of my experience of the story itself, reading it, I couldn't tell you a thing. <laughs> and yeah. I just don't remember. You know, except I, I kind of liked it, really. Um, but again, when kind of Mark Kermode went around saying this was the best film of all time, you know, I raised my eyebrow, but really I was in no position to judge because I hadn't seen it, right? Mm. You know, but then I saw it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think he must be out of his fucking mind. Or he was just being, pol- I mean, you know, making a career being polemical about about things. I haven't read his book, so, you know, he might have a, a there's a BFI classic book on it, so he might have a better explanation there um, or a more convincing one. Uh, but, you know, having seen the film, again, it's a film, I love so many elements of it, actually. I love the set design. You know, some camera moves are amazing. Uh, I love the look of it. You know, I love uh, the imagery, the kind of film noir imagery with, you know, the breath, yeah, uh, visible in the exorcism itself. Um you know, so so there are things that I find really entrancing. On the other hand, there are things that I also find kind of incoherent that maybe, you know, I just didn't get and you can explain to me. And I also found the um, treatment of the Linda Blair character of, you know, such outrageous vulgarity. Yeah, it is kind of really cynical and really exploitative. And I really despised it. I'm very old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah. I, I first saw this film 10 years ago at Warwick Film Sock, and it was the director's cut. 
um, which I was aware of, and I was aware that it had some kind of certain things that people found disappointing, like um, uh, superimposed faces. There's one point where where the kind of de- demonic face is superimposed on um, the sort of hood of a of an oven, and it looks so cheap when you see that, and that none of that was you know uh, present in the original, and also something like nine or ten minutes of footage that's really pad actually they kind of pad the film out actually and kill a lot of the momentum so i was very interested to watch this because we were watching the theatrical version as it was originally seen and i thought that i i thought i thought it was great actually i thought that the the tempo is really kept up and i really feel for the characters what really occurred to me is how how deeply i felt for the characters especially Father Karras, who I feel like I really understand mm. and get, I, you know, I, okay, so it's a little bit sort of uh, expositional where he literally says to another priest, I feel like I'm losing my faith. You know, that's kind of, that's there for the sort of cheap seats. But you feel it, he's got such a sympathetic face, sympathetic way about him. Uh, Jason Miller, who plays him, this is his first film, I think. And he was um, uh, mm. nominated for supporting actor at the Oscars. I was talking to my brother and he was saying, it's interesting the question of who the exorcist is because I watched I watched a couple of the original trailers on, on YouTube and uh, in one of them, you know, the voiceover is going, oh, when dark things are happening, blah, 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 you need the exorcist. And when it says the exorcist, it's the image of the door opening on the silhouetted Father Merrin. You know, that's the exorcist who they get in. Yes. But my brother was pointing out, well, actually the exorcist is is uh, Karras, because he's the one who performs the exorcism, ultimately. He's the one who gets the demon out of Reagan, which I thought was interesting. Like, actually, the focus really is on him. It is about him, and actually, Merrin is, um, you know, despite the fact he's kind of, you build up to Merrin, uh, and he's a star, he's Max von Sydow, as I said, and he and he carries with him this this authority. You know, I, what I love about Merrin is how he comes in and he's not interested in the backstory that we've had the whole time. We've had an hour and a half of backstory. And Karis literally says to him, well, don't you want to know about the background? And he says, why? Like he gets in and just gets to the job, you know. Um, and he's also got he's got this relationship to some degree uh, with, with the demon because you've seen that opening sequence in Iraq, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense, but it just gives you this kind of sense of who he is. And then when he arrives in the house, the demon screams, Merrin! Um... You know, he kind of comes in and and sets the sets the tone for how the exorcism is going to work, but it's ultimately Karras who achieves it. He gives his life for this girl who he's never met. You know, I mean, literally never met. Like he's only met the demon inside her. Um, so it's this amazing kind of act of mad sacrifice. I know. I didn't like the character. I thought, you know, it reminded me of one of those Sidney Poitier kind of characters from the mid 60s where you know the priest is like a jesuit you know and you know i a, a psychiatrist who's been educated at harvard john hopkins blah blah right and on top of that he's a boxer right like you know yeah. he's got yeah. it all right? yeah, <laughs> but he mean. can't be with his mom <laughs> <laughs> I thought, please <laughs> and um you know I think I think I think von Sydow is excellent because he brings such authority you know and power and kind of I mean just you know his silhouette alone which you know mm. uh, is 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 incredible um I I didn't understand the prequel right so I know you're supposed to get 
something. Oh, you mean the uh, the opening in Iraq? You mean? Yeah, he's in an archaeological dig, and he discovers the statue of what ends up being the devil, you know, and he also discovers a medal, which, you know, then uh, you see in Father Merit, is it? Karras uh, is the uh, young one. Yeah, Father Karras. Yeah, uh, it, and it's the medal that is then given uh, to the Ellen Burstyn character at the end, right? But you think, are they the same medals? Are they, um, you know, are they the same type of medal, right? Yeah, but the film makes a, a large point out of showing you that medal in close-up at the beginning, you know, and and then actually I still don't get what the connection between them is, right? Uh, mm. So, and then that standoff between the statue of the devil and him, which is in a way kind of, you know, quite poetic, I don't get. I also don't get the thing with, you know, that he's taking pills, so does he have a heart problem? You know, that's never quite explained, but you show, you're shown the pills at, in the beginning, and then you're shown the pills at the end, him taking one before he dies. That is also kind of unclear to me. Um, yeah. There were many scenes that, that were unclear. And actually, you know, uh, again, to me, Freakin is a great technical director, but he, he doesn't bring out as many elements as you would like in a shot. So, for example, that whole sequence where they're on campus, where you're introduced to the characters in some ways at the beginning, right? And they're shooting a movie, you know, which I, I mean, I love that uh, <laughs> scene. Yeah, she, uh, Ellen Burstyn comes out of her trailer. Yeah, people begin to fix her up. You see the cameras and you see the huge lights and you see the huge crowds and you see people looking on. Hmm. You know, great uh, 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 shot. But what's it about? Like, I, you know, then the whole speech and the shot itself, you know, and the way that the characters are introduced. I mean, it doesn't really connect with the rest of the film. Yeah, I kind of, I, I or maybe it does. I mean, because she says you have to work within the system to change it. But then you try to relate that to the exorcism itself, and I just don't see the connection. <laughs> so maybe, but maybe yeah. there is one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I know what you mean. Uh, but I thought, you know, she could have given a speech that connected somehow more clearly with the themes of the film, or, yeah, it kind of, you know, so it looks great, it moves great. Yeah, you're delighted to see what you're seeing. But then upon reflection, it doesn't, yeah, the, you, could mm. have, you could have made it mean more. Oh, yeah, or... I, I kind yeah, of. I know what you mean. Um, uh, it does. It does feel like it's hard to make the connections between those other scenes, especially what's going on in Iraq and the rest. And this takes me back to Hereditary, which we saw probably a couple of years ago. Now at this point, it came out, um, and when we had uh, Matt Denny, Doctor Matt Denny, on the podcast, the horror guru, as I call him, um, because he knows about this stuff, and he was talking about you know. Well, the questions we had about Hereditary were around, are there connections here that are hinted at that we're missing? Is there symbolism that we don't understand? In, mm. in this film, it would be things like the medallion. You know, what does it mean? How does it function? Um, and, you know, because we found it disappointing that you would kind of feel like the, the film is speaking in code. And actually, if you, you don't have the key to the cipher, then it's sort of lost on you. I think there are elements of the same feeling here. Um, but what... What I really appreciate is the is the the strength of feeling and actually how believable everything. Like it's so unbelievable for me as an atheist that you know this sort of thing happens. But God, I start to feel it. 
you know, I really buy into it, actually. I think one of the reasons that I buy into it is because they spend so long going through medical procedures and ruining stuff out that, you know, yeah. kind of they don't just jump to, to exorcism. And, and I think, actually, some of the real horror in the film is in those medical procedures, you know? Like, they are... I mean, it's, it's not just in the kind of queasiness that you might feel seeing the blood in the angiogram, which I know people were very uncomfortable with at the time. It's, it's quite hard to watch, putting the needle in her neck and the blood coming out. Um, it's also in the in the second procedure. The um, I, I, I don't know what it is, but it's like an MRI machine, and it's making these doo, 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 very very loud noises, and they 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 scream at you on the soundtrack. Like that is that's that's violent, you know. Um, and actually, it's it's more violent in some ways than the exorcism itself, because the exorcism is just about words. It's about just saying words, and all of a sudden these words have power. So the idea that Ke- that uh, Merrin comes in and knows what words to say, and knows the procedure, and just words themselves have power. So they just start saying words, and Reagan or the demon inside Reagan starts feeling pain. I, I sort of well, it's the holy water as well. Yeah, you're right. Um, so you know, and and I think. It, it it might be quite difficult for me to ever buy into that sort of thing, but I really start to buy into it here. I um and I think one of the ways that I buy into it is because the the physical transformation of Reagan is so visceral. Um, like this kind of thing is it's not transforming her face into like a different shape. It's eating into her face and it's scarring her and making her sort of dehydrated and desiccated. Mm. And it's very clearly the same girl. And I think the work the makeup work that's done is incredible to do that it's so easy to imagine just a like a like what it would look like a fake head or something you know so i think that's amazing you you feel in all the time there is this little girl underneath this that's suffering this there's this host i don't know i mean linda blair is fantastic as you say the makeup is fantastic and so on the voice performance of mercedes mccain um mccainbridge yeah it's fantastic. She does the voice of the devil. Uh, uh, um, she was in Touch of Evil and Johnny Guitar, uh, most famously. Uh, you know, so all of those things are great. But, you know, I think the idea of, you know, a young girl uh, 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 stabbing herself with a, with a crucifix in the vagina is shock imagery of the worst kind. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it is imagery that's meant to shock, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but I think uh, it's cheap, you know, and also I think it's kind of um, sexist, you know, uh, and, you know, I mean, you'd never think of, yeah, kind of making a film and having a young, you know, uh, a tween. But twelve-year-old boy is meant to be, you know, kind of stabbing himself in his ass with, with a crucifix. I mean, there's just such a kind of a sexist underpinning behind it that I find it, like, really repulsive and questionable. I mean, you know, so obviously mm. it does shock you because it's a shocking image. It's designed to shock you. But what what are you shocking with? And also, what for? Right, like. You know, it's kind of... The film doesn't dislodge any of your prejudices. It doesn't even, you know, put things to account. So, for example, I noticed Karis's mother yeah, has to go into basically an insane asylum because she can't afford a hospital. Yeah, so she needs care and, you know, she's got to be locked up, right? Um, and then, you know, you have 
the the Ellen Burstyn character who's got like 16 doctors around her, right? So, you know, there's a, yeah, kind of, there's a potential to do something like that. The film doesn't bother, doesn't care, doesn't mm. probably even realize, you know, it definitely doesn't make a point with any of that. That's just the way things are, right? But then it wants to make a point with a young girl stabbing herself in her vagina with a crucifix. I mean, ugh. You know, I think it's like... So what the point is, though, that you feel that it's purposeless imagery. That's That seems to be, like, is that the, the, the crux of your problem with it? Oh, I, I think the point is merely to shock, mm. right? I mean, I think, you know, that's all. That's the only point, right? I mean, you know, the point is that this is the most uh, disgusting thing you can show. I mean, I think... You know, the filmmakers would probably say, oh, this is the, you know, because the violence, because it's such a shocking thing, this is what leads the mother to call for an exorcism. But re you could have shown that in other ways, you know, fuck off, I mean. Well, I think, I think the point of that probably is that it's with a crucifix, I mean, and that it's a young girl and that it's kind of, it is, it's, it's the, about the most um, sacrilegious thing you can show, you know, or imagine. A young girl masturbating with a crucifix. Well, she could have stabbed herself. She could have tried to stab herself in the heart with the crucifix. It would, yeah, if, if, if the story point of convincing the mother that there's something tied to religion. But if it's about you know, kind of, if, it, if it's about this demon wants to, you know, wants, wants you to believe there is no God, wants you to question your faith, wants you to think that humans are kind of the worst thing they can be, like that is, you know, stabbing yourself in the heart with a crucifix is not nearly as uh, revolting yeah, and challenging to, to to what you might believe is kind of good oh, about please. people that stab yourself in the vagina. I mean, you know, I mean, basically they. That's why you find that more shocking. Revolting. That's why you find that more shocking. Well, That's why you would find that more shocking than stab yourself in the heart. But I don't understand you because I think what I'm arguing is that the only reason to show that imagery is actually to create that effect in the audience. Yeah. Right, because if it was the story point that you wanted to convey, you could convey it in other means, and that point would have been conveyed. And actually, possibly, well, I'm not sure that's. That, know, I'm not sure that's right. Like I say, I think if if the demon's intention is to shock and disturb, listen, you know, we've had lots of films with demons and shocks and disturbings without having a twelve year old girl shove a crucifix up her vagina. Well, I mean, that's absurd. I don't know. I don't know if it is absurd. You know, uh, I think it's absurd. And, and it's definitely shocking. And the only intention behind doing that is actually, you know, to create a cheap shock in the audience, which is the film succeeds in doing. And it's, you know, one of the reasons why we're still talking about the film 50 years later is because it has a scene like that, you know. But that, to me, it's not in its favor. Mm. <laughs> it's not what makes the film a work of art, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I see where you're coming from, but I, I don't know. I think... Um... I don't know. I don't know if I kind of disagree with its presence in the film. I don't know if I disagree with um, what I feel like it's well, pointing out. What I think it's you know it it it, it contributes. It just still does sort of contribute to the story. It contributes to that's, the feel and theme. That's just a that's just a cheap thrill. Well, yeah, it's know, that and, too. And it's, a, and it's a cheap shock, really. Uh, you know, and but, you know, this is about a thing. This is about a demon that wants to. Wants to shock and appall people. You have to shock and appall your audience to do it. Well, you don't have to shock and appall them like that. And you can make points in many different ways. Uh, and, and actually, uh, you know, so a lot of the discourse around the film subsequently is, well, Linda Blair didn't know what she was having. She was a young girl. Yeah. You know, she was directed into all... I, I believe all of that. Mm, yeah. You know, but nonetheless, 
you know, part of the reason why the idea with a film, the image is so shocking, is that it's a 12-year-old girl. You're told she's 12, kind of shoving up a, a crucifix, up, stabbing herself with a crucifix in her vagina. I mean, it's, you know, and, 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 and really, I think, for no other purpose than to create that shock in the audience, which I think is outrageous, you know. And, and actually, to have to descend to that to shock an audience or to scare an audience is 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 the work of a vulgarian. <laughs> it both made and ruined Linda Blair's career because, you know, forevermore she's the young girl who stabs herself in the vagina with a crucifix, right? And whose head twirled, right? That's mm. you know, that's what she'll be forevermore known. You know. So, you know, I think it's a child actor who wasn't protected. Yeah, it's a child who wasn't protected really, both from, you know, the the, the effects that the, the filming itself might have had and that the subsequent things might have had. Of course, you know, she now sees it as a kind of a highlight of her laugh, life. She talks about the premiere and how wonderful it was to be applauded, mm. you know. But, you know, be that as it may, in some ways what bothers me most is just the, the fact itself, yeah, that it's there in the film. Is that the only thing that you think was too far? Yeah, she says, she says, do you know what you did, your cunting daughter? You know, you, you, you object to the word cunt sometimes in American films. Well, I mean, none of that was, was, was... No, I didn't mind any of that, actually. I, I think it was this moment that I just... I still find it unacceptable. Okay. You know, so, yeah, the, the scenes with the veins popping or the head turning. I mean, the head turning, that's... You could just see as fun. It's kind of like, you know, it is a horror film after all, right? And you know that there are kind of special effects or whatever. But to get... To give the audience kicks by watching a 12-year-old girl stab herself in the vagina, I think is really low and unnecessary. There are many things that I liked about the film. Yes, let's go on to things that you liked. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, it could be a big rant <laughs> about that moment. Um, I love the way that it was shot. Mm. Uh, I loved uh, Ellen Burstyn's performance. Actually, I think she's terrific. Uh, as is, as I think Max von Sydow as well. Yeah, his presence. I mean, some things still still seem kind of amazing. So the child rising on the bed yeah. Yeah, during the exorcism, you know, the lighting of all of the exorcism bits. I mean, actually, I like, I kind of, I like the whole exorcism uh, section. You know, the way that they keep repeating the language, so the music disappears, and it's just them repeating and repeating. I thought that was wonderful. Um, I love the party sequence where. You know, and actually this made me think because, you know, there's a Spanish film called No News from God, uh, Sin Noticias de Dios, uh, with um, Victoria Abril and uh, Penelope Cruz. And Penelope Cruz is in hell. So she's a gangster, right. right, who's been sent to hell. So what's a gangster's worst idea of hell is, you know, to be a beautiful waitress, <laughs> constantly sexually harassed, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then this other person gets sent to heaven. And what's the idea of heaven is, you know, to be a nightclub singer in a cabaret, right? Singing standards to constant applause, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's what the film's about. And thought, actually, I wondered if that director, uh, Diaz Yanis, I think, uh, has seen uh, the, ex the exorcist is a... A, 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 a direct reference because there's that moment when the priest says my idea of heaven is to be in a nightclub yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so um, I love that bit I love the feeling that you get every time someone walks towards the room at the end of the house 
that she's in. Mm. You know, there is this forbidding feeling that someone is about to subject themselves to something in there. Yes. You know, I like the idea. It's interesting in the um, in the special edition of director's cut, they which was made at William Peter Blatty's insistence, the writer, the writer of the novel and the writer of the screenplay, because he kind of said, oh, you cut out so many things that should have been in the film. And one of them was the famous spider walk, where she comes downstairs on her hands and uh, legs sort of upside down. It's quite creepy, but it was never put in the original film. And, you know, I think it's something that really ruins the director's cut, actually, because you get this idea that, oh, she... You know, it could be interesting. You get this idea that she can leave her room but chooses not to. Um, you know, that could be turned into something, but the fact is that it's not developed in that way. So actually the way it functions in the director's cut is just a moment that shocks and raises many more questions than it answers. That doesn't happen in this. The action has to be confined to this room. Despite the fact that she's staying in this room and that you've strapped her to the bed and whatever, she has so much, she has all the power. I didn't buy it and I thought it was an incoherence in the storytelling. Again, another of Friedkin's incoherences because you know when you read comic books and you read about superheroes or a supernatural story or whatever you know the writers are always careful to give you the bounds of the world and the particular powers that yeah a monster has or yeah mm. you need to know what they're able to do in order to be scared or not scared or you know uh, here you never know what the de- you know what this devil's powers are or why they may be constrained in the bed, right? Kind of you know they t- they he says it would be too vulgar to you know break the ceiling or whatever, and you think well if he's meant to be the devil not just an ogre or something, you know or one of his underlings or you know he is meant to be the devil well then why can't he? And it would have been easy to do you know you could just say well you know. It takes them 48 hours on Earth before their full powers blossom. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree something. with that. I'm not sure I agree with that, because I just think that's not the purpose. Like This demon can clearly like move stuff around. You see it doing that. It can clearly transform things, uh, as it does to, to Regan's face. It can puke all of that green stuff out. It says, you know, it, it, it shoots the drawer out, and Karis puts it back and says, do it again, and it goes, in time. You know, so it can do things. But, but you kind of think, actually, if it wants to do, this thing could just run amok and take over the world. Why doesn't it? And it's because it's about these people. You know, it's it's not about taking over the world. It's about fucking with these particular people. No, you, look, I think the questions I'm asking are legitimate. It's the devil, right? Well, so it's a why demon. Why just smote them all? Well, actually, I think the film goes beyond that. It's the, de- the devil. It does, it does claim it's the devil at one point. So, you know, why doesn't it just smite them all during the exorcism or before the exorcism gets too far in the way? I think, but I think that's one of the things that you just have to buy, you know. I think that is one of the things that you do just have to buy, well, why actually. You, why, well, why do you have to? I mean, the, you know, the storytelling could have been clearer. I mean, it wouldn't take very much to to explain why at that moment the devil couldn't. Mm. Or, But I think then yeah, fundamentally your problem or... seems to be with exorcisms. I mean, your problem then seems to be like, well, you know, if surely the devil can just smite these people, well, then your problem is with... The, the fundamental premise that an exorcism is the way that you know Catholic sort of Catholic dogma says you get the devil out. No, because an ex you know you don't have an exorcism to get the devil out. You get an exorcism to get a spirit out, which could be many things. It could just be a dead person inhabiting your body. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the devil. Well, I didn't say it was right? the devil. You so, did. But I think if well, because the film says it's the devil. Yeah. 
But but I, I, I just I just see like if that's your problem, your problem seems to be fundamentally with the premise of the film, and actually that seems to be impossible to get round. No, my problem is my my problem is with the way that the film handles its premise, which is not the same thing. So what would it have to do to? So you're saying it would have to sit down and explain the rules of what the what this yes, demon can do? Yes, it would have to tell you tell you them in some way. It's very simple, right? Like you know you know about like uh, Superman's kryptonite or something, right? Like kind of you yeah you're always given the bounds of powers. Or the way that powers work. It's essential. Well, if you're talking about that. Superman's kryptonite, this, you know, this, the kryptonite here is the exorcism. You don't need to be told. I mean, well, you are told, essentially, the exorcism is the way to solve this. And like I say, when Merrin turns up, one of the things that I like is that he's not interested in the rest of it. He says, the only thing to do here is get the thing out. And he just sets to work. Look, but you're, the film tells you that the, 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 you know, the spirit or the devil in this girl could do all of these things, but chooses not to. Why does it choose not to? Because it's fucking with them. You know, I mean, you think about what... The question is, what does this demon want to do? Right? And like I said, you get the impression it can do anything, but it's choosing not to. Right? So that, so it's not about running amok in, or, or whatever you can imagine. It's, you know, it wants to do what it's doing. You know, and, and I think actually part of, the, part of that premise is that you have to kind of accept that... Which I think might be easier if if you have some sort of Catholic background or something, which I don't, um, because I think it probably speaks to that quite quite deeply. That the way the ritual works and stuff, you kind of feel like um, you have to buy that. Uh, it's it's almost like a game. That's the, that's the feeling I get, or that's the way I think about it. It's like a game yeah. for the demon. You know, that's why that's it funny. subjects itself to. That's why it doesn't just run off and start tearing down buildings. It's a game, and it's a and you know once the exorcism begins, it's like there's such a. There's such an interesting and I think very gendered uh, perspective in relation to genres. So, for example, you know, you have a musical. What? Who would sing and dance on the street? <laughs> right. But then, no, an exorcism. Anything can happen. You just have to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I never have. Wait, 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 wait. If I ever have, I don't have that problem with musicals. If I ever have a problem with the musical, no, it's you, not on the basis no, that people wouldn't just burst into song. <laughs> You know, I have no, a problem because I think true, the songs are true. rubbish. I think I think the thing is here, like, if you don't accept that there is some purpose, this thing just wants to fuck with these people, then actually the thing is completely dead. The film is totally dead. Well, it wasn't dead to me. I mean, I actually, I found it, you know, I found it very entertaining and moved well. The ambiance, you know, was great. Uh, you know, so actually I, I was quite entertained by it. And, you know, I saw yeah. it twice. Yeah, yeah. yes, I did. Um, I mean, it's interesting that when we said the other day we're going to do these podcasts on because today we've recorded both this and the podcast on Jade. And I said the other day, oh, we can't do the podcast tomorrow. Can we do it the day after? And I said, I'll watch them both again. And you said, yes, so will I. So, you know, which I'm not sure that I would have with any of the other freaking films that we've seen so far. I'm not sure that I would have bothered watching them twice. It's true. Uh, It's one of the interesting things about both of these films yeah, and particularly The Exorcist, that, um, you know, I find it both cheap in terms of shock, yeah, low-blow shocks. Uh, and on the other hand, I found it very entertaining, and I found it really pleasurable to watch. And I, I think I, you know, I mentioned in another podcast that I'm really drawn to production values, right? Mm. And the film is very glossy, yeah, and well-produced, and you know, kind of, some of the shots are amazing. 
Uh, and I think, you know, Friedkin, just the way he goes up and down those stairs, I think it's, you know, it's mm. so skilled. Uh, the effects, I think, are fundamental to what I think is so good about the film. The quality of the effects. Yes. And, the, the extent, and, you know, it's one of these things that people talk about. Well, you know, they built this uh, set basically in a fridge by the end so that you could see their breath on camera. So the actors, particularly Linda Blair, who's just in a nighty, is freezing to mm. death. You know, and mm. and there's there's kind of issues around what's ethical in terms of you know the kind of the filmmakers making the actors do that under those conditions. But the effects are incredible. The effect of uh, the green sort of goo, not just when it spews out of her mouth in the projectile vomit, but when later she's talking to Merrin and he's by the bed and it's just oozing out of her mouth. You know, mm. which again was like required this kind of contraption that was very uncomfortable for Linda Blair to have in her mouth, but the effect is incredible. Uh, the way that that shot, the, the way those shots were, you know, because this is pre-steadicam, the way those shots going up the stairs worked, and the kind of the rig they had to build to make that work, things like that are incredible. The quality of the makeup is incredible. So you know, it's an expensively kind of produced, very solidly put together thing that, that I I just like I said I I believe entirely. And I think keeping that action closed in in that room is so important to it. It's this concentrated feeling of evil yeah. that I love. I want to say that I am so surprised, going after having gone back and watched it, that Tubular Bells became the icon that it is on the basis of this film. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's, not a, it's not a piece that was composed for the film. It had been composed by Mike Oldfield uh within the, you know, a few months prior or whatever, and it was discovered and used in the film. And it's one of many pieces that are used in the film. And actually, its use in the film is is not that interesting. It's it's used early on, about seven or eight minutes in, when Ellen Burstyn's walking down the road and it just kind of comes in and leaves. And then I think the only other time it's used is right at the very end, where the, mm. the, the third priest, who a name I can't even remember, but the, the local priest, um, uh, kind of walks off. And the music comes in, and then all of a sudden, the, like this horrible discordant score comes in over the credits, so it ruins the music. Then, so you're going, like, why did this? Be-? And actually, that's why I went and looked back to those original trailers because I thought, oh well, the reason this, the reason people love this is because it was on the trailers, and that's why. And no, it's not that either. It's not on the trailers. So it mm. it just for so- somehow people picked up on this piece of music, and it became this massive hit that's now it's now completely associated with The Exorcist. And it's so inter- mm. so iconic and intertwined with it. I don't understand how it mm. became so massive on the basis of the film, yeah, well, weirdly. I, I don't either. I mean, you know, as I said, I came to this film quite late. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a great piece of music, though. I should mention that, you know, one of the things that, um, that both impressed me and pointed out to other aspects of the film's faults is, you know, a great deal of thought and care has been taken, for example, with just Ellen Burstyn's wardrobe, right? Mm. So she's meant to be a film star. So, you know, uh, she wears uh, expensive uh, dresses, you know, uh, I mean, you know, the, the ball gown for her party. Uh, she wear, She has this huge pear-shaped uh, diamond ring. She wears Hermes scarves. Like, it's all been, like, really kind of, you know, really carefully thought through. And then you think, I wish they'd kind of given the same care to some of the other <laughs> plot elements in the film, <laughs> right? <laughs> to be a complete bitch about it. Do you have any relationship <laughs> with, with the... I mean, you grew up in Spain, um, which 
it's quite Catholic, right? I grew up in Canada, really. Okay. I mean, you know, we, yeah, we moved to Canada when I was seven. So, uh, but do you have any relationship like with with the religion behind this that affects how you? Yes and no. I mean, I, I was an altar boy, so okay. so yes, you know. Uh, uh, but you know, kind of my my dad was quite uh, um, uh, agnostic or uh, not agnostic. Actually, he didn't believe. Um, so, uh, and and we were kind of forced to go to church until. We did our first communion and then no, no longer. So, uh, you know, I have that kind of a relationship mm. uh, to it. I mean, I'm not a believer, yeah, yeah. but I'm very interested in all the cultural aspects of it. And I, I'm, I suppose I'm intimately familiar with all the ceremonies of it, mm. though not exorcisms. <laughs> yeah, well, this is what this is saying that, um, again, I, I brought up Dr. Matt Denny, a horror guru. And I was asking on Twitter, do you have to be a Catholic to really enjoy or understand the exorcist? And he was saying, you know, growing up in the Catholic sort of milieu, as he did, means that he, as you just said, is familiar with the rite and ritual. And that, for him, is one of the reasons the film is powerful. He recognises that. I was thinking, like, is there a Jewish version of this that I would get more? You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, the, the thing is, I'm not quite sure that that's true, really, because, you know, the film would never have been, you know, that kind of massive international success that it was if you know it didn't also no no he's not saying he's not saying that um that you know you have to be a catholic to watch it but that it maybe speaks to catholics on a different in a different way or on a different level to non-catholics but possibly though you know it kind of it didn't work too well on this catholic no. but it seems to have you know worked very well on you yeah <laughs> yeah well i mean for me for, i mean i'm jewish so for me it's about a girl who disappoints her mother <laughs> <laughs> That's so not the case, also. The good joke. <laughs> Thank you. Um, ultimately, my response actually was I like this film much, much more this time than I did when I saw it 10 years ago. And I think it's partly because uh, this version, the theatrical cut, is better. I think it's tighter. There's less kind of mucking about in it. It's certainly less of that, of the of the effects stuff that they put in, that stupid face that shows up on the on the oven really winds me up. I think maybe also because I, I had lower expectations because I'd seen it. I mean, I remember the first time I saw it, I had all the expectations. This is one of the best films ever. Mark Kermo said it's the best. It's one of the highest grossing, blah, blah, blah. It's The Exorcist. Um, yeah, I remember my I remember my mum even would talk about it. Like she, she always remembered the pea soup shooting out of the mouth and she would laugh. You know, like that's something yeah. that she like. That's just a moment in cinema that she remembers and likes. You know, the film is actually. I think actually, it's that's worth mentioning, because the film is full of moments that still uh, reverberate in the culture. Yeah, right. That's one of them. You know, the opening of the door onto the room in the shadows is another. The head turning round. The head turning round. You know, so so I don't want to minimize that actually because. You know, the film is almost 50 years old. So for a film to continue to live in the culture uh, in the way that uh, The Exorcist does is definitely an achievement of a kind. Mm. I think there's no question about that. And one has to, I suppose, pay due respect. Um, you know, but, and, <laughs> you know, people who will have listened to the podcast already have, uh, you know, a good sense of what all my butts are. Uh, I think, you know, just to turn a tourist for a moment, um, it 
low. Well, I can't say lower because it was, you know, he was never that high. But it certainly puts a perspective on my estimation of Friedkin uh, as a director that uh, he, the films that are most famous directed by him, which is really The French Connection and, and The Exorcist. Yeah, those were mm. all kind of era-defining films, if you will. Yeah, they were massively popular and they continue to be watched and so on. Um, you know, that I found so many problems with 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 each of them, uh, whilst finding them also, you know, kind of very entertaining and with wonderful aspects and wonderful moments, right? But, you know, as a whole, I don't really rank them as the very greatest of films of any kind, really. Yeah, so so mm. if these are his most celebrated films, then it certainly kind of raises interesting questions. I mean, I feel like I understand intimately on a, on a deep, visceral level, you know, how, why this film took hold and why it stays in the consciousness, as you say. And I think it is, of all the films that we watch so far, and we watch quite a few now, this is the most fully rounded, the most complete. You know, we talk about like how he seems to have so little interest in character in the other films. When you come, yes. when like it seems like there's a choice between character and spectacle, and you always choose the spectacle. Here, mm. I don't think he does. You know, I I feel like I I get to know Karis. You know, please. No, I do. Yeah. I feel like I get to know Karis. I know on. who he is. I, I I understand the mother. I understand her, her. You know, the way she feels and the way she kind of uh, starts to believe that this is possible. And this kind of thing, like she will do anything. But I get it. I, you know, all the moments that we talked of as being moments that people still talk about are moments of spectacle. Yeah, that's the right. The vomit, the blood, the head turning, you know, the crucifix. Yeah. Well, no, I already, I, so, d I did mention, you know, why, what I understand about Karis's character at the start of the podcast, but you know, yeah, yeah, you know we haven't, yeah, we haven't focused true. on it, but I feel like, I feel like it's, you know, that is one of the reasons that I think this is his best film, basically, of the films I've seen so far. This is. You because know, it, it occurred to me to say that it's his most fully realized film, but I don't think that, I think that's wrong because the rest of the films I think are fully realized as well. It's just that what they want to realize is thinner. You know, there is something yeah. there is something more substantial to this. Okay, well, I, this is where we digress because this may very well be his more most fully rounded film. Uh, it might even be his best film, though. Actually, I don't think it is. You know, um, but let's say for the sake of argument that it is his best film, it's it's still very <laughs> cheap film. So a difference of opinion uh, here, but uh, you know, I I still I like you know I liked it enough to see it twice. Yeah. So mustn't discount that. So we are eavesdropping at the movies. Thank you very much for listening, uh, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, our social media is Facebook and Twitter at eavesdrop movies, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>